Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, we are in a series uh, exploring the famous story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah was an Old Testament prophet, of which there were many, but uh, his book, the book of Jonah, however, is uh, totally unique uh, among all of the prophets because it shares its message uh, by telling a narrative about the prophet rather than being a book about uh, the teachings, sayings, or poems, or writings of the prophet. Uh, So we get the the message of Jonah from a narrative about his life, rather than this is what Jonah said. So it's unique among all the Old Testament prophets. And we learned last week that Jonah uh, is not a litmus test for whether or not you believe in miracles or the truthfulness of Scripture, uh, but rather saw that whether you see it as historical narrative or parable, uh, either one is fine. The truth that it offers us is exactly the same. And so what we're, dis- what we're discovering in this series is that this famous story about a man being swallowed by a great fish is not just a lesson about obeying God the first time so that you can avoid all the bother about living in fish guts, uh, but rather <laughs> we're learning that it's, this story really asks some really compelling questions for us uh, and that, we can, that are for our lives right here uh, and right now. And so when we left our rebellious prophet last week at the end of chapter 1, Uh, He was running away from God's call to preach in Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And at this time, the Assyrian Empire was the the most violent and murderous empire the world had ever known. And then a storm rages on the sea because of his disobedience, and he convinces his fellow sailors to throw him overboard, uh, which in his mind, and certainly in the mind of the sailors, was certain death for him. And so... Uh, To to confirm that even more, chapter 1 ends by saying that he was swallowed by a great fish. And uh, if that was the end of the story, we would say, oh, that is too bad because that is a terrible way to die. Um, And in fact, I would submit to you that that's actually the intention of uh, Jonah chapter 1 is to leave us with this sense of this is really too bad. (laughs) What a tragic story about a rebellious prophet. Uh, But then you read, and then you realize, like, oh, this is not the end of the story, uh, and there's more to it. And so you you continue reading in Jonah chapter 1, you come across, then Jonah prayed to the Lord from inside the belly of the fish, and you realize there's more to this story because Jonah has survived certain death. Uh, He has looked at the face of death and has survived. Uh, And so we want to read Jonah chapter 2. Uh, and use that as our text this morning, and just pray that God would illuminate our hearts together. So uh, here it is, Jonah chapter 2, and actually I'm going to start reading in the last verse of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I have called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all the waves and breakers swept over me. And I have said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. For the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. For the earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you and to your holy temple. 
And those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Prayer, Jonah's prayer inside the belly of the fish. Uh, if we read it uh, on the surface, this feels like a very compelling prayer, one of the, a prayer that we should model after our own life. Uh, but when we start digging in, we realize this prayer is composed from a lot of different psalms. Uh, so Jonah, as a Jewish prophet, uh, would have had as his primary prayer book what we have come to know as the psalms. Uh, and I would submit to you that the psalms are also a great prayer book for us. Uh, but for Jonah, this is his prayer book, and uh, when, we look at it, when we look at this psalm, or when we look at Jonah's prayer, what we realize is that actually what he's doing is he's pulling different parts of the, psalm, of the psalms and the prayers that he has come to know through the psalms together in order to compose his own prayer. In fact, uh, biblical scholars have, have found out that there are, there are really very few of Jonah's own words in this prayer but rather Jonah is just borrowing and then mashing together uh, all sorts of prayers from the Psalms. And so it's, it's literally a mashup of Psalms. And so uh, when you said mashup, mashups are kind of an old thing, you had no idea what you meant, right? Uh, so, so here it is, it's a mashup of Psalms. And uh, actually this passage of scripture has, been come, has come to be known as Jonah's Psalm precisely because he's kind of pulling from all these different Psalms and creating uh, his own prayer to do that. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of listen in. Uh, I think there's some really great wisdom, some things to think about, some questions to ask as we look at this uh, Jonah's psalm or this psalm of Jonah. And the first thing is, is right, right away in verse 1, uh, or starting with verse 2, Jonah says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. In the, in the deep, from deep in the realm of the dead I called out for help, and the Lord heard my cry. It's interesting, you can hear sort of the desperation of the language of, of, of Jonah's voice and the, the, the desperation that he faces. Uh, in my distress, I have called out to the Lord. The Lord heard my cry. I'm calling out from the realm of the dead, right? Because he, when he went into the sea, he thought, surely this is, this is certain death for me. And then a giant fish swallowed him, and he's saying, okay, now it's really over. <laughs> and then he finds himself... Uh, alive in the fish, and he's saying, now from the realm of the dead, I am calling out to you. You can hear the desperation in his voice. And it's this, it's this uh, recognition from Jonah that he's saying, essentially, I have no resources on my own to get me out of this. Like, how am I ever going to get out of this? What in the world is going to happen? It's this recognition from Jonah that he is at the end of his ability to fix this or reverse this or turn this thing around. And when you and I come to those moments in life, crying out is often the only option that we have left. It's a recognition that I need help. Here's the deal. We are really reluctant to get to that point, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, if you're anything like me, you love to believe that you're very self-sufficient, uh, that you can do things all on your own. You want to exhaust all of your own resources, all of your own ideas before you ever get to the point of saying, you know what, I really just need some help here. 
uh, because we want to be a self-sufficient people. And I'd be willing to bet, though, that at some point in our lives, we've come to a place where we finally recognize, I can't do this on my own. And perhaps what prayers like this one show us is that life really works better when we live in relationship with those who can help and support and love and come alongside of us before we ever get to a place where we've exhausted all of our own resources. In fact, we are, we are so fiercely independent that we want to be self-sufficient. And, and to be honest, the, the reality is, is that probably, uh, you know, if we make a good income and we have a roof over our head at night and we never wonder where our next meal is coming from, there's a, there's a real strong sense in which we can come to believe, you know what, I just don't really need God. And we're kind of sort of just self-sufficient. But the reality is, is that when things really come at us in life, we find out that, that all of these things, while they're very nice, can't bring to us all that we need, Right? And that there are some things for which we recognize we just need God. And we need the community of people. In fact, I would submit to you that that's what Lent is all about. That this season leading up to Easter is, is sort of intentionally built into our, our annual cycle, our, our yearly rhythms of our life. Just to be able to have a, a few days in a calendar year to be able to say, you know what, God, I just want to take some time to recognize that I need you. And that as self-sufficient as I am and, and, can, and often can be and come to believe that I am, I just want to take a few moments to recognize my need for the Savior. But there's this thing, this, this weekend uh, here in this room or in this uh, building in the Welcome Center, I was teaching uh, a class, Christian Theology 2, right? That sounds very official. Uh, it was for some students who were... Uh, in the process of, of licensing to become a minister in ordination and, and there's educational requirements and I get the privilege of teaching some of these classes. And, and at one point we were talking about uh, the Trinity and trying to wrap our mind around how God is three in one. And, and what we were talking about is how, is how God exists as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and how we shouldn't think of that as sort of a hierarchy, right? Like, like God is sort of like the coolest, and then Jesus, we know a lot about him because of all the record of him in Scripture, but he's not quite as cool as God the Father. And then Holy Spirit just kind of plays sidekick to everything. He's like the Robin to the Batman, you know? Uh, and, and so, and I was trying to say, like, when we come to proper theology, we shouldn't think of, like, a superhero hierarchy of the coolest and then the sidekick and then something else, but, but rather we need to think of, of how God exists in Trinity, it's a circle together that these three members of the Godhead are continually loving and, and pouring out love for the other. And then what, we, what, what happens is that we are invited into that relationship. That at the core of who God is, is he is a relational God. And he has invited us to participate in his own essence of relationship. But what that means is that when we enter into relationship with him, he is always also calling us into relationship with other people. And so when we come to faith, we aren't just coming into faith with, with God through Christ. Yes, we are certainly doing that, but God is also always calling us in to be a part of a people. And, and so I just wonder if if there's a place in our lives where we have come to believe that we are so self-sufficient that we don't need God or other people, if we can learn from this, this, just the second verse of the prayer where Jonah is crying out and he says, literally, I've come to the end of my own resources, and just use that to kind of remind us that, man, we need not only God, but we need the community. Are you with me? So Jonah was running away from God, thinking that he could do everything on his own, but he quickly learns that that isn't the case. 
But nevertheless, here he is calling out to the Lord, and his confession in verse 2 is that the Lord hears him. And then his confession in verse 7 is this, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose up to you and to your holy temple. And we might think, man, these are really beautiful words, right? And what eloquent poetry this, this man is coming up with as he's surrounded by uh, whale guts. <laughs> and then we remember, oh, right, these are borrowed words. These are words that he learned from a prayer book. And then he, he's then applying to his own situation. Listen to me, I think this shows us something deep about prayer. What it shows us about prayer is that it, prayer isn't always going to feel like this deep emotional connection to God, but it may just feel like you're talking to the ceiling. Or in Jonah's case, it might just feel like you're talking to whale guts. Right? But I want to remind us today that prayer isn't about get, getting God to do what we think God ought to do, but rather prayer is about being properly formed. And so in this prayer, Jonah is confessing the reality and the truth based on a prayer that he has borrowed, that in the realm of the deep, God hears him and his prayer rises up to his throne. And so what I want to say to you is I want to release you from the guilt of a feeling like your prayer life ought to be this deep, always kind of be this deep emotional connection with God, but rather just say if we can learn to pray, and if, even if we don't have our own words, we can borrow from the wisdom of the Psalms and the Book of Common Prayer and other written prayers and be able to voice truth so that we are properly formed. Are you with me? Sometimes the, the church church's teaching on prayer can basically be summed up as uh, talk to God. <laughs> and, and that works to some degree. But when we talk to God, we often feel like we have to have this, this, this real deep thing, and that will come. I promise that will. And there will be moments of just a Holy Spirit-inspired, divine experience with God. And there will be other times where it's just like, my prayer is, not, is literally not reaching the lights of the ceiling. <laughs> The purpose of prayer isn't to get God to do what you think God ought to do. The purpose of prayer is to be properly formed. And so what Jonah is doing as he faces death and is certain that he is going to die, is he says, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. My prayer rose up and it reached your throne. I think what I want to say to you out of just Jonah chapter 2 verse 2 is that there's no shame in coming to a place in your life where you're crying out. And in, but in that place, realize that God also hears your cry. That God hears your cry. In fact, as you look at the scriptures, what you'll find is that God is, God's ear is almost always tuned to the voice and the cries of the oppressed. As you look at this sort of cycle of the nation of Israel, they, they come under conquest by some other empire. They, they're, they're oppressed, they're occupied, and, and their, their, their life is really difficult. And then they cry out to God, and what does it say? Time and time again, and God heard them. And so God's ear is tuned to the voice of the oppressed and those who are in a difficult time in life who are in a metaphoric belly of the beast. You with me? Well, let's keep going. Uh, so then verse three, 
Uh, I promise I won't spend that much time on every verse. Some of you are like doing the math and you're like, I'm gonna be here till 3 p.m. Uh, I promise we're gonna, we're gonna fly through the rest of it. Uh, so uh, verse three says, you hurled me into the deep and into the very heart of the seas. And he's talking to God and he says, you hurled me into the depths and into the very heart of the seas. Now this is interesting, isn't it? Because in, in chapter one, we are told explicitly who hurled him into the seas. And it wasn't God, it was the sailors. And yet here's Jonah saying, God did this. And it really, it really begs the question, is God responsible for Jonah's poor choices? Is God on the hook for Jonah, for Jonah hating the Ninevites so much that he would, refuses to go and preach to them and it causes him to flee? And the answer is no, God isn't responsible for those things. And yet, in the midst of this, Jonah sees God's hand all over it. And I just want to submit to you that this speaks to us profoundly about the presence of God in our life. There are two options. Option number one, God is directly responsible for everything that happens in your life, and you are just pawns asked to play your part. And so you better accept whatever comes your way, and you better love the chess master or he will send you to hell. That's option number one. For many of you, this is probably the only thing that you've ever heard about the presence of God in your life. That, that you've, you've probably had very well-meaning Christians come up to you in a, time, in a horrible time in your life or after a horrible incident in your life that you have faced and they would just look at you with all the love and compassion in their eyes and say, this is God's best for you. And then you might say, well, I don't really want to serve him then. <laughs> have you been there? Or maybe you've heard some Christian leaders on television or radio after, the, after some horrific event in the world and they say, you know, God did this because God was punishing this group or that group or whatever and this is all part of God's plan, etc., etc., etc. Or we might say, blah, blah, blah. Option number one, God is directly causing everything that happens in your life. He's the chess master, you're the pawn, love him or be sent to the bad place. Option number two, God is not responsible for the decisions that have brought Jonah to this point, but now that those decisions have been made, God is still present and with him. God isn't on the hook for Jonah and his attitude toward the Ninevites. God isn't on the hook for the decisions that Jonah has made, but now that those decisions have been made, God didn't turn his face from him and abandon him, but yet God is with him right here in the realm of the deep. God is walking with him through the hell, some of you aren't going to be comfortable with that word, but he's walking with them through the hell in order to show him mercy and bring something good out of it. Now this runs counter to our preferred perception of God, which is this, that when we give our lives to God, he will take us safely from point A to point B and hopefully include some blessings and comfort and safety and security along the way. That's our perceived, that's our preferred perception of God. God, if I give my life to you, carry me from this point in my life to the, the point B in my life, and let's have a lot of security and safety along the way. God is not a genie in the bottle that will make everything instantly better. We need to get our theology on this right. God is not a genie in the bottle that will make everything instantly better. But God is a faithful God who will walk through us, or walk with us, through whatever we're facing. You with me? God is, in a, God is not at fault for the choices that Jonah made, but in the midst of the choices that Jonah made, God sticks right next to him and is willing to walk with him through it. That's the presence of God in our lives. 
That's a beautiful picture of who God is. Sometimes we believe, though, that God's highest priority is to keep me safe and happy, but God's highest priority is to form us into his people. And so Jonah, through his own choices, experiences hell. But God is not surprised by this, but rather God is capable and willing to demonstrate mercy in the midst of it. And what's really compelling about this is that for most of the Old Testament story, the presence of God is contained in the temple or the tabernacle. In other words, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, that's where you went. In the Old Testament, God had an address, right? You go to the temple. That's where you go to experience the presence of God. That's where the presence of God was contained in the Old Testament. But then David, the psalmist, comes up with a brand new idea and writes a poem about it. Would you like to hear it? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Psalm 139 has a brand new insight into who God is. And he says this. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Because if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. For I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. For David, the psalmist, this is a brand new insight into the person and presence of God. Because David, for to, to David in all the Old Testament, God had an address. This is where he lived. This is where you went. And yet David is saying, there's no place that I can go where I can flee from your spirit. And so Jonah picks up on the psalmist and he begins to say, and he sees that God is with him and can hear his prayer even in the midst of the hell that he is walking through. This is a beautiful picture of who God is and his presence in our life. Now, some of you think I'm being a little bit melodramatic with the use of the word hell. I promise you I'm not. In verse 2, Jonah says, and this is the Hebrew, uh, well, one Hebrew word. I'm not really going to say it in Hebrew. But out of the belly of, and here's the Hebrew word, Sheol. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. Sheol is a Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. It's later translated in Greek as Gehenna, and often translated, not always, but sometimes translated in English as hell. <laughs> Jonah is, is saying, literally, I am facing hell in the belly of the fish. It was a place that he says was lower and more separated from God than even the grave. And we get an indication of this in verse 6 when he says, I'm at the root of the mountains. With how high the mountains rise, how deep do the roots of the mountains go? And he says, I'm at the very roots of the mountains. In fact, also, this, this idea of Sheol, the realm of the dead, it, it comes with it, this very distinct idea of being separated from God. And listen to this in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, I have been driven from your sight. In Jonah's mind, his choices have utterly separated from him from God. But here's the big revelation. The big revelation from inside the fish is that God hears his prayer and he is with them even there. Are you with me? I'm afraid that sometimes, sometimes we think that God is, is kind of with us when we're being good or God is with us here or, or there, but then we say, oh, right then, right then, God was not with me. He was absent and I think what we can learn from Jonah chapter 2 is this reality that, that God is with us even in the realm of the deep. 
That shows us a lot about the presence of God and the character of who God is. Sometimes we may not even recognize his presence. Sermons are a limited format. I can't say everything that I want to say. I can't provide all the nuance that I want to provide, but I, I do want to provide a bit of nuance here, and that's this. Sometimes it's our own choices that bring hell to our doorstep, as with Jonah. But the nuance is that there are other times it is the choices of others that bring hell to us. As with Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And either way, it sucks. (laughs) And either way, God's presence is there with us if we will wake up to the presence of God and seek to be formed through it. Because there is no sin of my own or of someone else's that is beyond God's redemptive reach. Amen? There is no sin of my own or no sin of someone else's that is beyond God's redemptive reach. We get a glimpse of hope in this prayer in verse six, the last part, where Jonah says, yet you have brought my life up from the pit. A recognition that maybe even here, God is working. That there's hope in this prayer, that there is life on the other side of what he's going through. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that it's right then, as Jonah is borrowing words from the psalmist, that right then he's beginning to think, maybe God is gonna get me through this, and that God is working. You see the butterflies on the platform, and they've been up here uh, for every week in Lent. We colored butterflies during our Ash Wednesday service as a recognition of this, that a butterfly doesn't start all beautiful and pretty and able to fly but rather it's a process over time that happens. And what we wanted to recognize during Lent is that if we embrace the times that aren't always comfortable, we will recognize that God is working in the midst of them, maybe even when we don't see it. And so God sometimes chooses to transform our lives in a moment, but more often than not, God chooses to work over time maybe in ways that we don't even notice, but when we look back, we say, man, I used to be like this, but God has formed me and shaped me, and now I can see the person I am today in Christ. You brought my life up from the pit is a recognition that there's hope on the other side. In other words, what was a vehicle of certain death for Jonah becomes a vehicle of grace, and I don't think we can overstate the importance of this, that right here in Jonah, we get a hint at God's merciful character that is willing to bring something formative out of even the most hellish moments in our life. And this merciful, loving, sovereign God is fully revealed to us and embodied to us in Jesus, who goes through the pain of the cross, but in so doing, brings redemption for the entire world. In fact, Jesus himself alludes to this connection with Jonah during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 and 42, it says this. It says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, him is Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, for none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. You see, the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, that's the pastors of the day, asked Jesus for a sign. Why would they do this? Well, because they, Jesus was causing quite a stir, and when you needed someone to prove who they were, and that this person is, in fact, who they say they were, then that's what you did. You asked for a sign. If you wanted someone to prove who they were, to stake their claim, to prove their point, then you went to them and you said, show me a sign. So that's what the pastors and the religious leaders of the day are doing to Jesus because Jesus is causing quite a stir. So show us a sign. Are you who you really say that you are? And Jesus says, well, that's very nice of you, uh, gentlemen, but that's not what he said, right? But he says, uh, actually, the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah who spent three days in the, in the belly of a fish uh, and the Son of Man is going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the grave. And so obviously what he's pointing to is his own death and resurrection. So he says to the religious leaders, if you want a sign, the only sign you're going to get is a sign of resurrection. The sign of resurrection is going to show that I am the true Messiah. It's the pinnacle of all the signs that, of all the signs that are already right in front of you. And so what, in other words, what looked like destruction was actually redemption, and not just for Jesus, but for the whole world. And what looks like, what looks like a loss was actually a, a victory. Oh, this is a great Easter message. Come on. Uh, and then the thing that was supposed to kill him for good was actually turned around by the power of God for something good. Are you with me? Our time in the belly of the fish can be used by God if we will wake up to his presence to be formative in our lives. <laughs> and that's good news. In this way, then, the Jonah story becomes a bit of a prototype for how moments of death can actually shape us. And so here's what I want to say. Here's, how, here's where I want to land this. And I hope this doesn't feel like too hard of a right turn, but, but it's this. What Jonah got, the, the reason Jonah got into this mess in the first place is he could not accept that God had compassion for people that he hated and considered enemies. Remember that from last week? Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is the most murderous and violent empire. They had already taken over northern Israel, Jonah's own people. And then God says, go and preach to them because I've, I've got an inclination of compassion toward them. And Jonah's like, forget this. I'm not gonna go preach to those people. They are too nasty. Here's what I wanna say to us. Living with hate for those who are different from us will bring death or hell, or I might say death and hell, right to our doorstep. Living with hate for those who are different from us will bring hell right to our doorstep. But if we are listening, God will use the vehicle of death, turn it into a vehicle of grace to bring about change. You know, we have, we have access to more information now than ever before. And this has led to an enormous amount of scrutiny in our culture. And here's what we can do. We can, we can take all the information that's coming at us, all the things that are being scrutinized, all the things that we're, that we're kind of being brought to awareness of, and, and we could never turn away from it and just completely enter in and focus only on that. I don't think that's healthy. But nor do I think is it healthy to just ignore it. 
think a better approach might be to say, things are coming to light that we just didn't know about, or that we have ignored, and these things can't be ignored any longer. And to ask the difficult question, where is the Spirit of God in, at work in the midst of the scrutiny? And to begin to be willing to ask ourselves really difficult and hard questions about what it means to, the peop- to be the people of God. And I need to be careful here, but my prayer is that we'll see, that we'll come to see that there may be ways in which the church, the people of God, have made choices that have have brought certain things right to our doorstep. And that now we just need to become aware that maybe we've lived with an idol of violence. Maybe we have lived with an idol of power. And, and, And we're bearing the consequences of that. And I'm praying that as a people of God, we will have the courage and the discernment to respond to systemic sin in our culture. And here's what I'm utterly convinced of. There are no easy answers. I'm utterly convinced there are no easy answers. I'm utterly convinced that we do need to expand our imaginations of what the world can look like. We need God to sanctify our imaginations so that we're not always working with just the same sort of like mindset that we've always been working with, but just pray humbly before God. God, would you expand and sanctify our imaginations to imagine a world that does not yet appear? (laughs) Which sounds a lot like the message of Jesus who came and proclaimed in the midst of the Roman Empire, there is another kingdom present and it's already here and it is the kingdom of God. Right? And so maybe, maybe we could just ask for God to sanctify our imaginations, to begin to pull the scales off of our eyes, to be able to see what does the kingdom of God look like right here and right now? What does it look like? How is it bursting in? How, what are the evidences that we see? And then begin as the people of God to align ourselves with the kingdom of Christ over and above everything else. But to do that, if we, if we get too entrenched in an old system, to do that, we need a sanctification of our imaginations. And I'm praying, and I'm utterly convinced that we need that. I'm utterly convinced that ignoring what we have, has come to light is not the answer. I'm convinced that we need to do what we can to hand our children a better world than the one we're living in now. And I would say to you that there is pain, there's power in the pain if we will wake up to the presence of God and be awake to the movement of God. And so, a poem. (laughs) I told you last week that I came across this book of poems inspired by the life of Jonah, and I'm just uh, finding that these are brilliant poems. But here it is. This one's called In Touch. Distress did it. Not Easy Street. Not Akron Avenue, not Prosperity Place or Brightview Boulevard. Not Fair Haven, not the Bay of Serenity or the Island of Tranquility. But off course winds and the straits of adversity and the tempest of the disaster that howled at Cherubdis. For the deep was around me and emergency exits were barred. I was pitted against perdition in a ravenous cavity. I was swallowed up. Better late than never. I remembered the forgotten. My troubles put me in touch. (laughs) My prayer is that our troubles
will put us in touch. And now for the sobering part of the message. Jonah went through all of this and wasn't changed. Chapters three and four show us that he remained the rebellious prophet who was mad at God for loving his enemies. Jonah's faith got stuck. And I'm convinced that faith is participating in the work that God is already doing. And the scriptures show us that what God is doing is making all things new. Notice God is not making all new things. God is making all things new. (laughs) There is a difference. And that he is gathering up all the brokenness of the world and all the ways that we have participated and all the ways that we have participated in shalom and all the ways that we have frustrated human flourishing and he is redeeming those things and he, for his purpose and he's moving us toward new creation. And so faith is participating in that work. So my word to you today, church, is let's get to faith and let's get to work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time today. I pray that you would take this message that I've done my best to communicate and to share and that you would seal it in our hearts. And God, that you would uh, challenge us and move us in whatever ways we need to be moved or challenged, that your spirit might be freely at work in this place. God, expand and sanctify our imaginations. May the scales fall from our eyes that we can see the kingdom of God and the places that you are at work. And then may we as the people of God participate fully in that. Give us wisdom, give us discernment to know what that might look like. For it is a complicated, nuanced, complex thing. But God, we don't want to ignore it. We want to move forward with your spirit. And so God, help us to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.